This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, and welcome back to the Money and Markets podcast. This week, we've got the latest energy price cap news, a guide to how to squeeze the most out of your credit cards, and I'm also joined by Danny Houston this week with all the markets news, including Snap's profit warning, lifting tariffs in China, and we're going to be dabbling in football this week with news on the Chelsea takeover. Hello, Laura. Also on this episode, we have pensions guru Tom Selby back with another pensions corner, this one looking at auto-enrolment. And we've also got an interview with property investment company Industrials REIT. But Laura, let's start with the big news of the week, the latest update on the energy price cap. And wow. Yes. So this news came, we're recording this as of Wednesday. Uh, This news came out on Tuesday. And the reason why I'm mentioning days here is everything is moving quite quickly at the moment. And so um, I'm aware that by the time some people listen to this, there might be some new news on the energy price cap. But we'll talk about what we know at the moment, which is that Ofgem, which is the regulator of the energy industry, and also the people who set the price cap. um, The chief executive of it yesterday said that the price cap in October is now likely to rise to an average of £2,800. Now that is the figure for an average household's usage. It will vary depending on each um, household and each home. Um, But that is about an £800 increase on the rate that we're seeing at the moment, which came in in April. So it's a massive increase again. Then obviously what's happened with the price cap, I say obviously, this might not be obvious. What's happened with the price cap is that it's being moved from being updated every six months to every three months. So our next update is in October. Uh, Then after that, the next update will be three months later. So in January, and from that point onwards, it will always be every three months. So what we're braced for now is this big increase in October, and then potentially another increase in January, depending on what happens to energy prices during that period. So Laura, you say that we're obviously discussing this on Wednesday. There have been a lot of calls for the government to step in and do something. And we know that there's all kind of speculation that they might well deliver some kind of a package to help people out maybe as soon as this week. Yeah, so that's the thing that I'm I'm most nervous about will, will have been announced by the time this podcast comes out or is listened to. But yes, I think the what's interesting is the chief executive of Ofgem has announced that he thinks the price cap will be about £2,800. But actually, we're not at the end of the calculation period um, that determines what the price cap would be. He was talking to MPs yesterday, and that's when he came out with this figure. But it's quite unusual for the regulator to come out with this figure, which has sparked speculation and rumours that the reason he's announced what it might be, or the ballpark figure, is because the government is going to announce some particular measures. Now, there have been lots and lots of calls for the government to do more. Obviously, so far, they've had the £150 council tax rebate and the £200 energy loan scheme, which comes into place later this year. Um, But now that's looking increasingly like not enough and out of date. And the government isn't short of ideas of things that have been suggested to them. So that includes turning that £200 energy loan scheme into a grant so that people don't have to repay it. 
things like increasing the warm home discount, which is um, money towards energy bills for the most vulnerable, vulnerable and lowest income, um, or things like bringing forward benefit increases that would happen next year um, to help those lowest income families, or maybe handing out another council tax rebate like it did. Um, I think what people are looking for now is very targeted help at lower income families who, frankly, aren't going to be able to afford this next increase in energy bills and maybe can't even afford the current energy bills as they are now. And the official date that we finally find out that figure is normally August? Uh, Yes, so the official announcement of what the price cap will be and the specific rates, because there is a rate for standing charges and there's a rate per kilowatt hour for gas and electricity, um, those specific rates will be announced in the first week of August usually. And that, of course, brings us on to how on earth the government is going to pay for any kind of help that it delivers to people. And one of the measures which certainly opposition benches and a lot of campaigners have been calling for is a windfall tax on energy companies. And from dismissing it completely outright and saying that, you know, we need to be focused not on painkillers, but on getting the operating theatre ready for, you know, future need it's now looking like potentially the government might well impose a windfall tax. There's been so much speculation about it. And and as you said, we are recording this on Wednesday. Yesterday, suddenly, a number of green energy producers saw their shares go into free fall, really. We had SSE, Harbour Energy, Drax, Centrica, Greencoat UK Wind, all down massively because of reports in the Financial Times that any tax might not be limited to big oil and gas energy producers. So we had shares in BP and Shell not really reacting at all because those companies have been very much under the under pressure for weeks. The government's saying to them, look, you either need to demonstrate that you are putting money into UK energy infrastructure or we will look at imposing a windfall tax. This is because of the huge surge in profits that they've seen just because those raw commodity prices, oil and gas prices have been so high. A bit more fuel on the fire today because we had um, figures from SSC. They reported a pre-tax profit of £3.5 billion. That's up 44% on the previous year. But the boss there, the CEO, Alistair Philip Davies, said that, you know, he shouldn't his company shouldn't be subject to a windfall tax or any energy companies because they are investing. So SSE said that they plan to invest 24 billion in British energy infrastructure during this decade. That includes new wind and hydroelectric power projects. And that is a substantial increase from the number that they had already said, which was 12.5 billion. But that amount would take us up to 2026 and this new amount takes us to 2030. However, there are a lot of ifs, buts, maybes, exactly how much money would be generated from such a windfall tax? How far would it go when it has to be divided among so many people? And so let's move on from the energy space and look at the rest of markets. So uh, Danny, you've been looking at retail figures that are really mixed bag, if you'll excuse my shopping pun there. Um, So we're split between the shops that the rich folk use and the ones that us ordinary people shop in. What's the divide there? 
Yeah, I mean, this probably shouldn't be much of a surprise to people, but um, basically you have companies which have a more affluent core consumer who are saying not only are they doing well now, but they expect to continue to do well for the rest of the year. So we have an update from Nordstrom, which uh, is the upscale retailer of choice in the United States for affluent consumers. Um, They saw shares leap in pre-market trading um, after their Q1 results. Revenue is up 18% at just over $3.5 billion. And what they've said, look, is we've delivered strong growth and we are continuing very much to focus on our core consumer. And because they are cushioned somewhat from this current inflation cost of living crisis, we don't expect to see any material change. And it was a very similar story from from Ralph Lauren. Um, After quite a difficult 2020, the uh, American brand reported full year sales way beyond pre-pandemic levels, up 41%. And again, they have said that despite supply chain problems, they are not expecting to see any particular impact on their core consumer. I don't know about you, Laura, but um, I probably run more to M&S than Ralph Lauren. Um, yeah, I don't even know where the nearest Ralph Lauren shop is, but I was in M&S just the other week buying something. Well, the high street favourite is about to lose its chief executive after six years at the helm. And it's been quite a turnaround at the time. But he leaves at a really tricky time because although M&S has just announced really fantastic results for um, the the last um, results period, surging online sales, they had food sales up, they had clothing sales and clothing and home has been a bit of a bugbear for the uh, retailer for quite a while. But the other thing that they have said is that increased pressure on customer budgets will impact the rest of the year. And that is the same thing that we've been hearing from a lot of retailers that operate in that sort of general space where consumers are affected by cost of living pressures. However, pets at home have just also issued an update Uh, Their full year figures show that pet lovers are still more than happy to splash cash. Um, Share price has fallen 40% on on year to date, but uh, it's currently top of the FTSE 250 risers because the sales have soared by over 15% and pre-tax profits up by 70% to just over 100 million. And the key bit here is that although they're also about to to lose their boss, he has said they don't expect to see any material change because when they ask customers what they're going to cut back on, pets sit very much on a par with children. It is the last thing on the list. (laughs) All of those pampered lockdown pooches are not going to miss out on their treats and food. (laughs) No, not at all. I mean, certainly my pets, um, yeah. Overspend, definitely. (laughs) So the other big market news this week was from Snap, which old fogies like me will still know and insist on calling Snapchat. Um, That issued a profit warning this week, didn't it? Yeah, and I think it caught um, markets very much on the hop, which I suppose is unusual because we have already um, had 
the um, idea that advertising was going to be impacted because Alphabet last month reported weaker than expected advertising revenue for YouTube. But it's the fact that it's come off the bat of a fairly upbeat update just over a month ago. And now they are warning that um, it's going to miss earnings and revenues expectations as a result of this slowdown. So, you know, about a month ago, Snap's business was actually expanding at over 30%. Then growth suddenly collapsed. And that was driven by a broad decline in ad spending, uh, according to a, a number of analysts. And of course, what you've got to remember is that when the economy tightens up and people don't have as much cash to spend, uh, market budgetings often also contract, because what's the point in trying to appeal to people to get them to spend money if they don't have it? And the reason that this made such a splash is that it then, of course, impacted on a whole load of other internet companies, including Facebook, Google, Twitter, Pinterest. I mean, they were seeing really quite significant falls. And of course, for US markets, which have you know, been in a state of extreme volatility, the S&P 500 right on the cusp of a bear market at the moment, this really did cause some pain for investors. And on the flip side, we have some potentially good news, um, but for China markets as it emerges from lockdown and also um, the US is talking about lifting some of its tariffs, isn't it? Yes, that's right. So we're expecting Shanghai to begin to come out of its COVID lockdown on June the 1st. So far, numbers there look good. And Shanghai is really important for uh, international trade, massive port there. But on Monday, President Biden announced that he was considering lifting some of those trade tariffs that had been imposed on China by the Trump administration. Um, now, these um, tariffs are due to expire in July. And now President Biden has sort of indicated that they might well lift those tariffs. This isn't entirely altruistic, though, because American consumers are obviously struggling with high inflation. Ending tariffs could make imports cheaper. So although, yes, it is potentially good news for a number of Chinese companies, it's also potentially good news for the American consumer as well. And one final tidbit from market. So as we're recording this, it looks like a deal has been struck for Chelsea Football Club. Now, obviously, if you're looking for football chat, this is definitely the wrong podcast, but we're going to dabble in it this week. And Danny and I are going to try and navigate the football space. <laughs> I've had to talk about this quite a lot and it's fair to say that I am not a massive football fan although I have had to learn an awful lot about it and I will on occasion watch a Huddersfield Town match but there we go this is Chelsea and this has taken up substantial amounts of headline space because since Roman Abramovich had sanctions imposed against him he's had to then put Chelsea up for sale. And of course, he's been the owner for a huge number of years. And Chelsea fans have really liked the support that he's given to the club. But clearly, there was no way for him to be able to continue to operate in that space. So a deal was reached to allow a consortium led by LA Dodgers co-owner Todd Bowley to take over with a 4.25 billion pound deal. 
But there have been so many hoops to jump through in order for this deal to go ahead. As we're talking on Wednesday, this morning, we literally had a sort of rubber stamp from the government to say this can go ahead. We also had the Premier League saying that they... The uh, new owners had passed the fit and proper test that uh, owners need to pass in order to be given licenses. But the big sticking point was the amount of money that was owed uh, on the club, 2.5 billion. And the government has said that they did not want Roman Abramovich to um, get any money at all from this. He he wasn't supposed to, to profit at all. So... They have now said that they will set up an independently managed foundation to oversee the proceeds of the sale. That will be um, established and run by Mike Penrose, who's a former executive director of UNICEF UK. The funds will be frozen and then there'll be a whole load of other hoops that will need to be jumped through to make sure that they get to the right place. And of course, all of this money is to go and and help people of Ukraine really come back from some of the terrible devastation that we have seen. But this is good news for Chelsea because they were really stuck at a point where if they didn't get this over the line before the 31st of May, then they were going to have real problems in terms of taking part in competitions next year. Now, we are going to switch to personal finances. And Laura, first of all, now, in the past, I have had premium bonds. I don't anymore because I got fed up of not winning anything. But the chance of winning bigs just risen. It has. It's got slightly higher. Um, so premium bonds, you save money in them and you get entered into a prize draw each month. Um, and they work out what your effective interest rate would be. So based on average luck and average winnings, um, premium bonds provide you with a figure of what that effective prize rate will be. And so that's going to shift from 1% up to 1.4% from June. So it effectively means your chances of winning money are are slightly higher. And what they've done is increase the number of prizes. So there's still only two £1 million prizes that can be won each month. But all of the prizes um, underneath that, so from £100,000 and below, there's more of those prizes each month and therefore your chances of winning are higher and your potential return is higher. Um, so it's good news. It's it's in response to the fact that the Bank of England has interest, increased interest rates and that means that other savings accounts have had to increase their interest rate. Um, it's worth pointing out that that kind of effective prize rate of 1.4%, even though it's improved, is still below the actual interest rate that you'll get on an easy access savings account, which is 1.5% at the moment. So you're still not matching that amount of money. Um, and also you could win nothing. But premium bonds are handy for some people. So um, they're, ha- they're good for people who kind of want to gamble. If people think, well, savings rates have risen a bit, but they're still not massively high and I'm not going to get a great return on my money. I'd rather gamble that I'm going to win nothing but I could win a million pounds. So they're good for those people. Um, They're also good for people who are higher earners um, and have quite a lot of money in cash. So one of the big um, attractive features of premium bonds is that they were tax-free and they still are tax-free, but 
in reality now, most of us won't pay any tax on our savings income because something called the personal savings allowance was brought in. And that effectively means that people can earn quite a lot of interest before they have to pay tax on it. Um, so for a basic rate taxpayer, so if you pay 20% tax, then you can earn £1,000 in interest on your savings before you pay tax. Um, for a higher rate taxpayer, so a 40% taxpayer, you can earn £500 in savings interest before you pay tax. So that kind of diminished the appeal of premium bonds. However, if you're a additional rate taxpayer, um, so the very highest earners, you don't get any of that personal savings allowance. So the tax-free nature of premium bonds is more attractive. Um, but also, if you're eligible for the personal savings allowance, but you've got a lot of money sitting in cash, and you know that you're going to breach those allowances, then premium bonds are also good for you. My dad won on premium bonds once, not a huge amount, but it was very exciting. Um, have you ever won anything? Exciting. Yeah, I I had some, I think probably like most people, had like a small amount bought for me when I was a kid. And I remember being about 11 and getting a letter through the post and getting a check for £25, which seemed massive back then. And I was very excited. I think I might still have those premium bonds, although I have no idea where they are. And I haven't won anything since. So I think my luck is down. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, at the moment with the current squeeze, you know, getting a check for even 25 quid would be nice. Um, but you've been doing a cost of living series to help people really make sure that they're getting the most from their finances. And today, looking at how to get the most out of your credit cards. Yeah, so a lot of people um, use their credit cards for everyday spending anyway and pay off the full amount each month um, and use it to get the protection that you get from spending on credit cards or any perks. Um, but obviously, in the cost of living crunch, more people will be putting money on their credit card. Um, so for these ones, what I'm going to talk about is perks, so kind of cash packs or rewards that you can get on credit cards. These won't necessarily be the best credit cards if you want to do balance transfers or interest-free spending, for example. Um, so this is purely for people who are using their credit cards. Um, they're not worried about the interest rate being charged on them because um, they're going to be paying it off every month, but they just want to get some perks from it. Because if you're using a credit card with zero perks, you may as well switch to one that gives you a bit more benefits. So with that caveat out of the way, um, people that want cash back for their credit cards, then American Express is often the best option. They often give the best rewards. Um, they used to be a bit tricky because not everywhere would accept them, but I'm an American Express card user and I find living in a city, most places will accept it. So um, it's not as much of an issue as it was before. So the Amex Platinum Cashback Everyday card gives you 5% cashback for three months um, and then half a percent for the next £10,000 that you spend and 1% over £10,000 and has no annual fee. If you don't mind paying an annual fee, if you're a bigger spender on a credit card, you can get the Amex Platinum Cashback card. Um, it sounds like I've just said the same name there. One is called Platinum Cashback Everyday card and the other one doesn't have the everyday in it, just to make things I complicated. I see what you did there, yeah. <laughs> um, so you pay £25 a year fee for that, but it gives you more cashback. So if you spend about £900 a month or more on your card, then it's worth getting that, paying the fee and getting the higher cashback. Um, if you don't want an Amex card, but you do want cashback, then Santander has the next best offer. So that offers you half a percent cashback on everything you spend. And then it will have certain offers with other retailers where it will offer you um, more cashback each month. 
Um, that has a fee, so £36 a year fee. Um, so you need to just make sure that you're going to be earning enough cash back a year to more than cover that. So I worked it out and that's about £7,000 if you're just getting that standard cash back on it. Um, and then my other tip is if you always shop in the same supermarket, then it's definitely worth looking at a credit card that's linked to that supermarket. So for example, Sainsbury's has one, Tesco has one, M&S has one, um, and you'll get much more points for your spend in store. So for example, Sainsbury's Bank will give you 8,000 points if you spend £400 or more in the supermarket in the first two months. And then you get two next points for every £1 that you spend in Sainsbury's or Argos. So if you're very loyal to a specific supermarket, it's definitely worth checking out um, a specific credit card for that. Very much. Every little helps at the moment. You've stolen that supermarket slogan. (laughs) (laughs) Now we have the return of Tom Selby in Pensions Corner. This week, a question from someone asking, I'm being automatically enrolled in a workplace pension scheme and was told this would be 8% of my salary. However, I've just done the sums and my contribution works out less than this. Can this possibly be right? I've also got a friend who hasn't been auto-enrolled at all are we being shafted by our employers? Thanks, Danny. Um, good question. The answer is probably not. So, so under under automatic enrolment rules, all employers, regardless of their size, are required to enrol staff in a pension scheme and pay a minimum level of contribution. So, eight percent of qualifying earnings. And I'll come back to that in a, in a second. The reasons for those reforms being introduced was was pretty simple. So millions of people weren't saving for retirement. Some organisations offered a pension scheme and some didn't. And even where they did offer a pension scheme, lots of employers simply didn't join that scheme. So there was a risk that lots of people were going to end up with nothing in retirement. Now, in terms of these specific cases, um, I can't rule out the possibility that their employer isn't playing by the rules. But the answer is likely to be a lot more straightforward and a little more boring than that, I'm afraid. So under auto-enrolment rules, employees are required to contribute a minimum of 4% of qualifying earnings, employers paying 3%, and then the extra 1% comes via basic rate tax relief. So that's 8% in total. Now, employees have the opportunity to opt out if they want to, but they'll miss out on the employer contribution if they do. But that 8%, as I mentioned, is only based on qualifying earnings. So rather than it being based on your entire salary, it's just based on a chunk of salary. So it's the salary between the lower earnings limit for national insurance contributions, that's 6,240 quid in 2022-23, and the upper earnings limit, so just over 50 grand. So if you take someone who's earning £30,000, for example, then Rather than that 8% contribution being based on the entire £30,000, it's going to be based on around £24,000. So so, so it would be £30,000 minus that lower earnings limit, which is just over £6,000. So that probably explains why less is going into the pension than than the sums would suggest. Now, in terms of um, this person's friend, again, there are legitimate reasons why someone might not be being auto-enrolled while you are. So there are certain criteria that you need to meet in order to qualify for auto-enrollment. So if you're 
under 22 years old or over state pension age, which is currently 66, then you won't qualify to be automatically enrolled, although you do have the option to opt into the pension scheme if you want to. Um, if you're earning below £10,000 as well, so that's known as the auto-enrollment earnings trigger or slightly more complicated, I feel like, than it needs to be, but there you go, um, then you don't qualify for auto-enrollment as well. Although, again, you have the option to opt in. And I think one final technical point which may be affecting this person is that employers have the option of not auto-enrolling new joiners who do qualify for the first three months of their of their employment. So, can't rule out that there's something shifty going on, but I suspect one of those reasons I've laid up laid up there will be the reason why things aren't quite as our reader thought they may be. Perfect. Thanks for that, Tom. And I think that 8% of salary versus 8% of the qualifying earnings things probably captures quite a lot of people out, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and we, we, the government has, um, has said that it's um, intending to remove this qualifying earnings ban so that every pound that you earn once you're earning over £10,000 and you're, you're, you're age 22 um, qualifies for a match contribution. They're also, they've also said that they'll reduce the age at which someone qualifies for automatic enrolment from 22 to 18. However, and here's the rub, they've said they'll do this by the mid-2020s, which isn't the most specific um, by by any government. The commitment was made, I think, back in 2017 or 2018. A lot's changed since then. So watch this space, but, but nothing happening in the near future, I don't think. Now, Amazon recently made some comments that it's no longer chasing physical capacity, which hit shares in industrial property landlords in the UK pretty hard. So shares deputy editor Tom Sieber has been talking to the CEO of Industrials REIT, Paul Aronson, about what's going on with warehouse owners. So, Paul, thanks for sparing the time. A lot of the investors in big warehouses have seen their valuations fall in the wake of Amazon's recent growth warning. Could you explain how industrial REIT is different and and why perhaps you won't be affected in the same way? Uh, Yeah, thanks, Tom. Um, Yeah, the main difference is understanding the um, multi-led industrial asset class compared to the big box or mid box. Um, They're in distribution, so essentially all their all their tenants are the same. They're tenants who are involved in the distribution network or in some way in, in the distribution framework of e-commerce. Um, we are different in the sense that we use that distribution. Our tenants are not actually in distribution. They are only maybe 1%, 2% of our tenant base. We have 1,500 tenants. They all do different things. But their business models are such that they use the distribution networks to distribute their products or to access their suppliers. But they're actually in different businesses that are just enabled by that. So it's not a case of all being in that business. And if there's overcapacity in that business, that it's a problem for the occupiers of that business. Um, in fact, overcapacity in the distribution side is, is a good thing for us because our tenants then have more um, capacity and possibly cheaper ability to distribute, but they're doing other things. Right, yeah, that I'm makes sure. perfect sense. And I'm just sort of looking at it from another perspective, though. Are, are there other risks associated with the sector that you're in? For example, because you let principally to, to small and kind of medium-sized businesses, are they potentially more exposed to the uncertainty we're seeing in the economy at the moment? Um, Yes, I'd say smaller businesses are probably more exposed in that they don't have the deep balance sheets of the big businesses like Amazon. 
<clears throat> but we manage that risk through diversification. So we have 1,500 tenants. No one tenant has more, more, is more than 1% of our rentals. So that's already a big factor in the thing. And also the smaller the unit, the more potential occupiers there are. If you've got a million square feet, there's only one or two businesses that can occupy that. Whereas if you've got our average size is 3,500 square feet and there's, there's lots and lots of different businesses that can occupy those spaces. Um, but also we have this other theory, which is if you go back to looking at who traditionally occupied multi-led industrial, it was the manufacturers or the services of things, people who made or serviced things. And for years, there was a static occupier base. If anything, that occupier base was declining as industrial um, operations were moved to places like China and so on. So um, that occupier base was very um, small. And so in times of a downturn, they would, um, you know, they would suffer disproportionately and you'd see vacancies going up. And, um, and also they suffered because their inputs, you know, their, their stock and their, their, their parts and all of that sort of thing could become more expensive and so on. But now what you've got is with the e-commerce and the internet revolution, you've got a whole new occupier base of internet-enabled businesses who now can do things and use the distribution channels. So they do things in our space. And um, that's created a whole new occupier base. So our thesis is that in the next downturn, um, that will to some degree offset the decline of tenants. So if some tenants go out of business, you've got an expanding occupier base. It's, the way I think of it is if you had 100 industrial tenants and you lost 10, you'd have 90 left. But now you've got 100 industrial tenants and you've got 100 new tenants who've never previously occupied multi-let who are now needing their space. Your universe is growing. And whilst both of those might see some fall in you know, businesses going out, of, you know, not doing so well, the actual universe of occupiers is growing to offset that. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. And, and just as a final question, how do you think, or how good do you think investors in the market have been at distinguishing between you know what you do and sort of the the other kind of industrial property investors you know which are, i guess are uh, dominated by those big box operators i think it's starting to happen industrial's been a you know it's been a an, a sort of asset class that hasn't really had a huge amount of attention in the last two or three decades usually very specialist operators so people didn't know how to segment it properly and they, they're really getting to grips with that still and it's early days, but I can sense that people are getting to grips with it. So the distinctions between big box, mid box, and um, what we do is starting to become more apparent. Ours, ours is more of an operating company. It should be looked at more like self-storage. We're just one level up from self-storage. So when people start asking, what's your covenant and what's your lease length, we know they're asking the wrong questions because our lease length stays the same. We're renewing um you know, reletting 25% of our leases every year. We are a highly operational company and it's not about covenant or, or lease length. It's just about that space works for this universe of tenants. This universe of tenants is growing exponentially. Uh, there's no new supply because no one would build this. They'd always build big box or, or mid box because um, it's cheaper and you can sell it on a lower yield and you can get a pre-let and you don't have to do it speculatively. So, so we're in a unique space which people are only just really learning about. They, they sort of remember it from the old industrial days, 
um, but they don't see it in its sort of gentrified um, way. They, if they do think of it in the gentrified way, they're really starting to think of us more as part of the distribution channel, which is, again, a misunderstanding of it. That's everything we've got this week. Thanks so much for joining us. Next week, we have a financial advisor on the show to tell us when you might benefit from advice and how you find an advisor. If you've got other areas that you want to delve into or explain, do send us an email, podcast at ajbell.co.uk, and we'll cover it on a future episode. And don't forget to like us, review us and subscribe on your podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And we'll see you next week. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.